Hello, welcome to Dear Seekers. Um, I was gonna write the intro for this episode, but instead of doing that, I think I'm gonna just talk to the mic directly. And、um, I'm sitting on my desk, facing my computer, have a cup of cold coffee right beside me, and I think I need to have. Need to tell you something, almost make a confession about this episode. Um, so a couple weeks, or actually a few weeks ago, I was joined by Victoria Chan, the writer and American poet. Um, who you know, I'm gonna read her bio later, but she's a very fascinating, um, writer and poet. And I, I was also joined by Claire Foster, who is a French translator, literary translator, and she works at Type Books. Her recommendation was actually the reason led me to Dear Memory, which turned out to be so far the book that has changed my life.、Um, when I was reading this book, I just I was sitting on the couch and I couldn't stop. Sobbing,、um, just such an emotional and spiritual experience. I had to put the book down and、I、just kind of sit with my feelings for a while, because so many of my own personal memories just start coming surfacing, coming as a flood to me that uncontrollable in a way. And all these memories were buried by me, and then for some reason they start surfacing. And I think that's precisely. The beauty of art is like when someone's on receiving end, almost, you know, experience something that the writer or the artist themselves、uh, didn't anticipate. And、uh, so, the reason I want to tell you this because I wanted to let you know how much anticipation and excitement I had for this interview going in.、Um, I really wanted to be great. You know, beyond great, beautiful, wonderful, excellent. I had so much, so much、um, anticipation for this book. I, I had so many questions I want to ask Victoria. Also, I think because、uh, her experience growing up as Asian American and my experience, you know,、uh, as a Chinese Canadian living here, definitely has been con- one of the contributing factors to why this book, you know. Meant so much for me, but also her sense of talking about grief,、um, her sense of grief of her parents, and she also write letters in dear memory to her daughters, to silence, to memory, to her teachers. So, almost feel like she's writing a letter to me, although rationally I know this is not true.、Um, of course, you know. As any interviewer go into an interview conversation, we need to do tons of prep and research work、uh, to prepare for the conversation. But I was so fixated on the questions itself, like what questions I need to ask her, and you know, what questions I need to cover. Like I was pretty much、um, immersed myself in. Any podcast conversations she had been on, I was reading tons of interviews、uh, Victoria was in. So almost like, you know, I was so fixated trying to source my inspiration externally instead of asking myself what questions I really want to know, what questions really intrigued me. Um, so turn out no surprise there the interview. Was a disappointment, at least to myself. During the interview, I wasn't present at all. I was so clouded. My mind was so clouded by the logistics side of the, the questions, instead of just really be present with Victoria, with Claire about this conversation, let it flow the way I usually would.、Um, so the moral of this story is really. You know, when we have our do our work, create our art, sometimes we let the distraction be the death of the of the project, and、um, and that's what happened to this conversation. I'm actually really disappointed in myself 
But the reason I still decided to release it because at first I actually thought of not to release or publish this conversation. I thought of actually confront my my own fraud experience、um, for this time, and then just document it in a way so I can always go back to remind myself. Whenever I do an interview, I really need to look in internally first to ask myself what questions I really want to ask. And then another thing is, I really want to document this messiness of this process to present to you. Otherwise, I'll be quite dishonest. And then third reason I decided to release it is because that's the whole idea, the whole thing I'm trying to champion, dear seekers, for is. To really see this whole is an attempt to, you know, document and explore this perpetual journey we're on that is gonna show imperfection and it's kind of get closer to be who we are, and that's precisely why I'm doing this from the first place anyway. Right, I got all that out of my system, and I still hope you will get some nuggets of wisdom、um, that can reflect who you are back to you in this conversation, despite all I have shared. Before we get into the conversation today, I still wanted to introduce you, Victoria and Claire.、Um, Victoria is American poet, writer, and editor.、Um, she has written so many different poetry of books, and especially Obed, that was published in 2020, was both critically acclaimed and commercially celebrated.、Um, it was named a New York Times Noble Book, a must read,、um, a time must read book. And received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and so on, on and on. So many prizes、um, her book Obit has received, and which interestingly, her the quote unquote success of this book actually led her to a two year long depression. And so we will talk about that in the conversation, which is fascinating. And also Claire, Claire Foster is a literary translator from French, and she also works as a bookseller at Tide Books in Toronto. If you are from Toronto, you definitely know Tide Books is one of the most beloved local independent bookshops. And、um, for for small press and the review of the Center for the Study of Arts and Literatures of North Africa, it's <laughs> quite a long name.、Uh, Claire has translated short texts by George Sand and Isabella Bernard. Her translation of Pierre Clementine's 1973. Prison memoir. Prison memoir. A few personal messages is forthcoming from Small Press. So I'm so lucky to be joined by two fascinating minds, and I really hope you will enjoy the conversation. And I had to stop writing down、um, the memories kept flooding in my mind because all these years I buried. I have no idea why I buried them. Maybe. Obviously, probably for survival reasons,、um, but they kept flooding to me that overwhelmingly I uninvited in a way. <laughs> but then I also felt I needed to process them、um, and then to preserve them in a way to to you know move forward. So thank you, Victoria, for writing this book. It really, really changed my life as a reader and as a writer myself. And also thank you for. Claire, for introducing me this book, because without you, I I probably wouldn't notice this book actually, because there's so many books out there,、yeah. um, <laughs> and I love the cover for sure. The cover definitely spoke so much as well. But I think there's some sort of like I believe book finds its own people, and、uh, um, I think this book has also find me as well.、Um, so thank you both for being here,、um, Claire. I'm gonna. Pass the mic to you. Maybe you can tell us why you picked this book as the one to recommend. But thank you so much. That was so nice. I just wanted to tell you what a nice,、um, what a nice thing you just said. And and、uh, we'll talk more. But、um, go ahead,、mm-hmm. Claire. I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah. Yeah. So、um, I came to this book、um, 
Dear Emery after seeing a galley of it posted on Instagram. Um, and I saw, um, I was immediately drawn to the title and knew that I wanted to be near it. Um, it was the first book I read of yours and now I've gone back to read um, Obit and others. Um, I think I was especially interested in the letters because um, during the pandemic, I was part of, I've been part of an online reading group that's informally framed around low-key reading parties um, that have been led by writer and editor uh, Waming Chang. And we'd recently spent a week on the idea of correspondence. Um, every week we were kind of like responding to an idea that was posed to us and one could either come to the reading parties with um, just a book pulled from the shelves with the passage that related, or one could write a response to it. Um, and um, I really love the idea of correspondence. It's a word that um, me and my friend uh, and writer, Nay Serino like to misspell or spell in French uh, to include the word dance, because in French it's spelled correspond, D-A-N-C-E. Um, and I love thinking about it like that to kind of breathe a movement and the sort of play into the words. Um, and yeah, so I read the, I got the galley, I emailed Milkweed and they sent me a galley and I loved it so much, but I will say um, that I actually debated for a while um, as to whether I wanted to recommend it for types of book of the day, because I can hardly get the title out of my mouth. Um, and I kind of resent the title and I'm gonna say why. It's because I have an occasional minor stammer and I stammer two out of eight words in the title. I stammer the word memory and I stammer the word letter. And I had to film the video multiple times because I kept um, stammering in the title and I know that's fine, but I wanted to get it right. And I kept rehearsing again and again, just the title. So I also appreciate the opportunity to kind of feel the words in my mouth and say it out loud. And um, yeah, so if, and even if you listen to the video, I remember I, I looked outside and saw a streetcar when I said the word memory and whatever. And I said both words with a lot of apprehension, but I did make it through the words. And anyway, yeah, I was really happy to recommend the book because I wanted to talk about it so much. And um, yeah, I loved it so much. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and I think I definitely, as someone who were watching the videos, can definitely feel the your love for the book, and then that kind of get translate well through the the medium. Because sometimes people might recommend something they don't really believe in, but when you actually recommend a book from your heart, and you know the the audience can actually easily smell that. Um, so before we get into the conversation, uh, Victoria, I know you have probably read so many times of your book already. Um, but if you can actually, do you have the book in hand with you? I just really hope you can start reading the page 13. I am seeking whatever is painful in my body, whatever is joyful. While seeking, I may never find myself. While seeking, I have no idea what form I may take or whether anyone, including myself, will ever like what I write. Most of writing feels like walking in the dark. I'm reminded of what Donald Barthelm said. The writer is that person who, embarking upon her task, does not know what to do. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Listening to you again, that just evokes so much emotion. Um, I think... You mentioned why writing these letters, you found boxes of old photos in a storage facility and why going through them, you had a almost access a lot of family history that were unknown to you, such as your mother's birthday, your parents' marriage certificate, your father's American name that was rarely used in the family. And at first I thought these old family belongings prompted the letters but later on, I realized, oh, actually, you start writing the letters. And in the midst of it, you discover these storage of uh, per, like, um, you know, um, belongings from your family. And then even before these letters, you know, if, in fact, a decade before your mom passed away, you conduct an interview with your mother. And so it seems like for a while, this searching for something like a connection with your family history, with your mother, your parents has been there for you. Um, 
And I wonder, what were you searching for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a great question because I was just talking to a friend about writing, and we were talking about, and and she said this. She said, you know, what is, and every piece of writing is trying to answer a question. And I thought that was so interesting to think about,、um, and. I I started thinking about that and and wondering about that because you know my initial reaction is wow that's fascinating and then my second reaction to everything is always like I wonder if that's actually true or not so <laughs>、um, and and I ended up thinking that is an interesting thing to think about like what are what are what is the question or the key questions that your writing or your life is trying to answer. But those questions, I think, are often unanswerable. So that's the fascinating process for, especially you know, people like me who、um, the questions are actually literally not answerable.、Um, and even if you can, you know, go digging and asking questions and interviewing, it's it's very difficult to find the exact answers that we're looking for. And then it made me think, well, then what exactly are we looking for? Maybe there's nothing to look for. Maybe. Maybe it's all the process of looking that is what's most important. And so,、um, yeah, I, I I think just initially when I started, I was just you know wanting to know all the answers to these questions. And I'm still not sure how many siblings my mother had.、Um, I couldn't tell you if it's six or seven. You know, I think she was number two in her family, and I could probably find some relative to ask, but. I realize those are not actually important anymore, and it's really about that process of thinking about my relationship to my parents and my relationship to my roots and my home countries, right?、Um, and the people that are there and we left behind and things like that that actually、um, resonated more with me. It's that process, you know, that messy process.、Mm-hmm. Claire, do you have any comment on that, or you want me to jump in? Keep,、um, keep going. Keep <laughs> okay, I just jump in anytime you like, Claire.、Um, and there's a lot of collages and archives in the in the the book, of course, and、uh, it's definitely the different mediums to tell the story than than written words, and they're not glued on on the page permanently, and they're kind of like just. Effortlessly, gently place on them. I found this very interesting because that kind of tied up to the whole idea of like memory is in mo- movement, emotions, and what was the two kind of artistic、um, act for you are like in different, and how did you kind of pursue that, and something maybe differently come out of it? Sure. Yeah. I mean,、um, when it started, it was literally just. Um, you know, like putting in in squares in Word, you know, or rectangles, and just typing things in, and it looked like a PowerPoint. I mean, it was so bad; it was clip art at at its very worst、um, stage. But because I was really focused on the writing, and so you know, just writing, and I mean, I have a, a feat of of drafts. You know, like I I really was trying to get every word sort of the way that I wanted, or I felt like it wanted to be. And so I kind of just place held the the actual、um, interview. You know, when I found my mother's interview, I kind of pl- place held it there. And then、um, eventually, though, it felt like it felt like this manuscript really needed photos. And then and then I put the photos in, and then I put more bubbles or like they were rectangle, like they almost look like speech bubbles. And typed in some poems, and it just wasn't working. And then eventually, I just,、um, I just felt like I needed to use my hands. You know, I needed to write things out. I needed to cut things out. And、um, and then I just started experimenting. I mean, there, I still actually I was cleaning out this space. I still find little slips of paper because <laughs> it was just so messy. Like there. Slips of paper everywhere.、Um, I had to rewrite things over and over. I would make mistakes. I would cut them, and then I would move them, and then I would change it, and I take photos. I mean, it was this process that I probably was in the visual art aspect of it for six months of just like really, really digging, digging in, and trying to figure 
out what would work best in this kind of weird book, you know? Um, so yeah, it was very iterative and it was actually looking back on it, super fun, but hard because, you know, it's like I was doing it alone. And then it was, um, when I actually reached out to one of my visual art friends, she's a poet and visual artist, Monica Ong Reed. It's like finally, you know, speaking of uh, conversation and dialogue and correspondence, I, I work so much better on everything if I have someone to talk to. So once I had someone to talk to, it just blew my mind and opened everything. And it was, it's not that I didn't know what to do, but it's more like just, and you like having to actually articulate what you're trying to do um, verbally. And, you know, like, like even when you write what you're trying to do, um, you know, describing what you're trying to do, it's fascinating. Journaling, I think can be super helpful. So once I started corresponding, you know, to use Claire's word, um, which I use all the time too, I think of myself as a correspondence poet, a correspondence writer, um, that changed everything, but it took a long time and it was super painful when I think about it, like during the process, it was so hard. But in retrospect, um, I thought, looking back on it, you know, like a lot of things, it was, I think it's really fun, but that's how memory works too. You sort of erase the hard parts and you're like, oh, that was nice. Or in reverse, sometimes you erase the positive parts. You're like, wow, that was really traumatic. And so I think um, in this case, I look back and think, oh, I had a good time. That was fun. And so now I'm doing more um, drawing for this new um, book that I'm working on too. Mm. Yeah, in an interview with David Neiman on Between the po- uh, Covers podcast, that was a beautiful, beautiful conversation, by the way. Yeah, Listening to you. that conversation, I was just thinking, what am I even, even going to do now? <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. But you did talk about writing this book. Your, your fear was it was too messy to package into something a reader can understand to consume, right? And then I think that has been the question many artists or reader uh, writers um, struggle is that if their project is going to be, you know, purely from something they wanted to explore or it's going to be accepted commercially because, um, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you need to balance that. But then uh, you kind of went back even in your contract to see if you can, you know, dig something, some turns out so you don't have to, you know go with the book deal. So what kind of changed your mind or help to continue this process of you finishing up this book? Was it for personal reasons or you couldn't dig out the contract? So you had to finish it. (laughs) Both. Yeah. I mean, there was no, no, I mean, there's no way out really. Um, And also I, I really felt like, you know, I, I feel like it's important for me as a writer to show process. So I'm not as much concerned with reception or um, how people might feel. Like, I always feel like I'm barreling forward. Like, I, I'm always over there. And, you know, whoever wants to join me is fine. But I don't feel like people necessarily always initially understand my vision. And I don't really understand my own vision. But whatever vision that I'm having at a time, I feel like, um, you know, people can join me or not. And sometimes it could be way too far over here or over there, over there. But I think it's important for me to show that process because um, I think that's more interesting to see how an artist or a writer develops over time and um, versus like skipping things that you worked on. And we skip stuff all the time. But, but I think that because of me and my limited time, I actually don't skip that much. I just don't write or I don't, you know, you know, it's like what actually makes it into my time slots, limited as they are, I feel like there's something important there. You know, there are those burning questions that I'm trying to answer or explore. And so I trust that. And what the result is, it could be not as commercial or not as well-received or criticized, but I can't, you know, really focus on that. Otherwise I think it'd be too hard to even start writing, you know? And so I just trusted that instinct of this is, this is a, you know, this is a film or a photograph or a, um, a recording in some ways of, of my, my life and my thinking at that moment in my time as on this planet. And I just have to trust that it is what it is and you do the best you can and then you just move on. So. Mm. I always wonder how one artist or writer gain their 
confidence in not to, you know, kind of negotiate with other people's opinions or thoughts about their work. And it seems like you you did talk about that you don't, brought you actually don't care what other people think about your work. I think that's something from even the people I interviewed and from myself. I think it's a very hard thing to to navigate is that self self you know idea of like what other people think of my work. So was was that something always like that for you, or was it something you have developed or or even practice along the way? Yeah, I mean, I get asked that question a lot, and I also recognize being very good friends with lots of artists, you know, both writing writers and musicians and and visual artists, is that I genuinely feel that way. But I I just my good friends, like I know that that that's actually not as common and. Um, sometimes I even get questioned, you know, like, are you sure you're that way? Or maybe you downplay how much you care and those kinds of things. So I've thought really hard about it. I really don't care. And um, I was just having this conversation with um, someone a couple days ago and um, they were saying actually like, hey, you know, what people don't know about you is that you're so competitive about everything. So it's like, uh, the the actual process of competition is what really is fun for you. So even if it's like playing darts or like playing a video game or um, something totally unrelated, you know, like I do a lot of fundraising in my job. So it's like if I raise some money, I'm like super excited and then I quickly forget about it and then I move on to the next thing. And so I, I think just naturally by nature, I'm more process driven, I think, than maybe other people are or can be. And then also I think um, I have like so many ideas in my head in like a, an hour, you know, it's like it's just constantly these little pinballs in my head. And so with that kind of personality, I think it, there's just, they're all sort of equal in some ways. And so it's sort of like, if, if someone doesn't like something I made, well, I can make something else and they, that they may like. And, and then it also means you're not as wed to a certain thing that you're doing. So I don't feel like any of the things I've made are very precious. And um, because I know that I I'll make more stuff, you know? And so I don't know. I think it's a combination of all of those things. And um, yeah. And so I think I just, I just don't, I don't really care. It's like, you know, who I care about is I care about me. It's like, am I happy with what I wrote or am I satisfied with my effort really is, is what I enjoy thinking about. Like, did I have fun doing that? Um, And if the answer is yes. And if it's writing, or making stuff, the answer is always yes. And it's yes, yes, and a hundred yeses with exclamation points. Um, what a joy and gift to be able to use my brain and my heart in ways that I saw that my father couldn't, you know, when he had a stroke, um, or my mother couldn't because she had to leave these countries. And so I don't know, I feel all around um, anything I make is just such a joy and a gift. And so um, yeah, I don't, I don't care. And actually the poet Jane Wong and I are talking about this too. It's, it probably also has something to do with race, right. And, and, uh, hyper invisibility and hyper, you know, um, visibility, like the tensions of those things being an Asian American woman and still, you know, battling daily, the misogyny, the racism. Um, I get called the wrong, um, Asian poet name all the time. Um, so it's like, at some point, you just can't, it's like, yeah, you you all can do whatever you're doing. And, you know, I'm just going to focus on my own stuff. And that's the best that I, I can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the race and identity part is definitely something, a whole chunk I want to explore together later. Um, before we finish here, I just wanted to kind of, because what you mentioned earlier kind of preface what I wanted to ask is... Um, yeah, you don't seem to really enjoy the center of attention, um, you know, things that getting the, you in the center of attention. And that's why um, from uh, the research I've learned, actually, after Obit, you gain the Obit gains so much success and praise from industry and um, and also from commercially as well. But yet that kind of led you to in depression in a way because that put you in the center of something you didn't quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. So is it possible to, for you to take us back in that for that two years when I will, I think 
yeah, what was it like for you in that two years? It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, and and it's a terrible thing to say because I think the book, um, you know, was very well received and um, got a ton of attention. And then I was thrust into these environments that I felt like I couldn't say no to because, um, you know, I never, I've never really have been asked to do some of the things that I've been asked to do. And so it's it's an honor and it's a privilege. But these were things that maybe other people wanted more than I did. And I'm fine if people could ask the book questions, but if they have to ask me questions and I have to stand on stage and do all the, I really didn't like it as as, and it was very jarring. And also, if you think about how an Asian American woman like me might come into poetry. Um, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm pretty old, but, uh, last couple decades, it's, you know, you're so accustomed to being invisible that you get very used to it. And so, so being immediately thrust like that into the limelight, so to speak, um, even during the pandemic was really hard. Um, and it's because I don't, you know, I, I prefer to actually work behind the scenes and build community and support other people. And the work can go live its life away from me. But I think with, um, you know, with poetry and, and, you know, literary success these days, at least, it requires you to be more attached to your writing. So, I mean, people literally, they, you know, when they hold their own books up, they're next to their books. Like if you look on Instagram, all the people are like, I, my book, whereas I would never do that. I'd just be horrified because I'm like, no, no, the book <laughs> is over there and I'm not that. And I'm happy to be over here and the book can be over here. So I'm just, I just think I'm, that's just who I am. Even though I'm totally extroverted, you could throw me onto any stage and I'll be fine. But when I have to talk about my own stuff, like in front of a, people on a stage, that, you know, all the time, it, it just, I don't know, I wasn't used to it. And um, two years later, well, yeah, two years later, I've gotten really, you know, more used to it for sure and, and much more comfortable doing it. But it was just a lot that happened to me in a short period of time. And um, part of it was that my book actually, you know, it's like it was just on so many award lists. And so there was a lot of pressure and people would email me and say, or text me, or it's going to win the blank. It's going to win the blank. And it just put too much pressure on me. I was like, no, I don't want you to tell me that you think it's going to win X, Y, or Z. And every time you're on a finalist list, which was a lot for me, I mean, wow, in, in your lifetime, if you could have a book on one finalist list, you're doing great, you know, and, and my book was on so many, it was, it got, you know, and it didn't it won a lot, but it also didn't win a lot. And so it just felt like I, I felt like I was naked and everybody was watching me. And I, I sort of hate that. So yeah, it was traumatic, but it's over, you know, it's not, it's like, that's, I think that's done. And, and like people move on to other books and, and things like that. So, um, you know, other people might like what happened to me and I'm happy for the book, but I, you know, I didn't really like it myself. What is your relationship like? I mean, maybe that can be varied from book to book. So you feel like the book wouldn't be necessarily like right beside you. And I know a lot of writers would describe their book as their baby. Some of them are described as like, you know, something, a journal or some art, like um, history memory um, thing they can channel back. So what is your relationship, relationship like with your books? Um, I feel kind of embarrassed about them <laughs> after they come out. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I just, you know, it's like I just don't want to look at it anymore. And um, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's just sort of in the past, and so I've kind of moved on. Like, I'm most excited about, you know, this thing. Like, what is this? Oh no, that's an, an old one. I don't even know where that manuscript is. But oh, I think I brought it with me to. Um, I brought it. What with are you me. looking for? I'm looking to show you what I'm most excited about. This, so my newest, my newest manuscript. So here it is. Ta-da! This is yeah. uh, this. Uh, this is my what I'm excited about now. But all the other stuff is like, it's like that's old me or that's old whatever. But you know, that's the, the it's ace like the timing of things. It's like, it's like. It's kind of like being in love. It's like, I'm in love with this one, but, you know, other people are still looking at this one. And so that's, I think that's pretty normal. And, and I remember um, the poet Bridget P. Jean Kelly said that about her first book. I was so excited when I met her. I 
found your first book. I dug it up and I found it and I bought it. And I, you know, it's like, it took me a long time to find it. It was out of print. And she was so embarrassed. Like her face literally was flushed and she was like, oh no, 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 that's such a terrible book. And, and I really relate to her in that way. Um, and she was, you know, notoriously known to kind of want to be in the background. And I'm not as, you know, maybe quiet and is, you know, whatever she, she was, but I definitely um, have those same feelings. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's that, definitely not babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. It's like, I've given birth. They're not babies. No, they're just, you know, they're just, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're like tape cassettes. Remember tape cassettes? They're just like, or like VHS recordings of like mm -hmm. a certain time. Like some people really love to look at themselves and re, you know, review. And I'm like, totally, I live in the future. So I think that's another thing. I don't like to live in the past except when I'm writing, but then I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm all forward. I'm like, everything is like, I'm looking 50 years ahead. You know, I like, I like to think really far into the future. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting that, you know, you only look back when through your writing. And I think that was my question, because I, when you say I don't look back, and then my first the question popped in my head was like, but what about your books? They're right. all about, you know, read like, yeah, the past and then like use that writing to do, you know, communicate with uh, the people who might not even able to respond. And I know last time when we trying to correspond in this interview that, you know, we had to cancel last minute because your dad actually fell and that led to his passing after all these years. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask about grief was, I think, no longer relevant, but in a way I'm sure still is, is that in, a, in Dear Memory, you talk about grieving so many different type of forms and shapes. And one of the grief is about people who have dementia, because in a way, you talk about the the grieving process still multidimensional because some of the physicality of them are still here. There's some part of them still here, but some part are no longer with us. So you kind of grieve along the way. And now your dad is no longer here. Do you feel like you kind of concluded something there or mm -hmm. how how is your process like with with grief? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question for anyone who's um, lost a parent. And I'm sorry about your mother too. It's, um, it's different. You know, each death is different. Each grief for different people is different. And so, I, you know, I've thought a lot about this um, because my parents are both gone and, and, and why I felt differently about my mother. I mean, my mother's death shattered me. I mean, it just broke me into a million different pieces. And then shit. And then it was like someone took those pieces and threw them all over the world. And I don't know where they are anymore. So I feel like um, that's what happened with my mother. And then my father, when he died, it was so sad because, you know, he had 19 days of just, you know, that horrible process. So many things happened. And um, I wrote one long poem just so I can sort of process some of that. But I realized through that process is that he died um, 14 years ago. And um, so it was, it felt like a very different feeling for me. And it was just so sad. I felt so bad for him and so guilty about everything, even though I didn't have any control over anything. Um, and then I was talking to my friend whose mom had died around the same time. Uh, he had a very different experience. His mom um, died very quickly during COVID and and, uh, and, and, and he, his grieving seemed so different than mine in both ways. You know, it's like, I just had two parents that had really long illnesses. And so, um, it resulted in a book like Obit, you know, only a person that experiences those longer illnesses probably could, you know, have so much time to think about how many things die along the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with my dad, I was like, wow, um, I didn't, like, I truly feel now I don't have to perform happiness anymore. You know, I don't have to perform like I, it, it's like all over the last 14 years. It's like there I was so stressed and so worried and always dealing with so much that everywhere I went, I was smiling and laughing. But in retrospect, it was all it all had to be performed to some extent. And since my dad passed away, that's been a new feeling and emotion in that if I'm laughing oh, I really am laughing, you know, whereas I realized before I was like, I was laughing, but I really wasn't laughing. So that's been a new thing for me. I realized it's like, um, 
how much acting that I had, I've had to do over the last 14 years just to stay afloat because other people don't want to see you crying all the time, <laughs> even though I'm sure I did a fair amount of that and being stressed out. I just had to pretend everything was fine because people are not, you know, I mean, nobody I knew was in the situation that I was in. I'm sure there are so many people that were, and I would see them when I would go to my dad's facility, but they were also usually a lot older than me. So it's just, everything was really different um, for me. So I felt really lonely, I think over the last, you know, um, decade and a half, but I, I couldn't really acknowledge that loneliness until after he passed away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Claire. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I guess I want to say thank you again for um, talking with me. And um, I guess before I wanted to ask a formal question for you, I feel the need to make clear my point of entry for this conversation. Um, I think it would be dishonest um, if I were not to tell you where I was in the world when I was asked to do this interview um, over the weekend. Um, my dad, uh, with whom I've been mostly estranged over the past few years, died at the end of January, around the same time as yours. And over the past weekend, um, I actually went back to his hometown where he lived in Northwest Ohio. Um, and so I know that this is not a question yet, but I also wanted to confess that I had thought about bringing Obit um, back with me to Ohio, and I opted not to. Um, I wanted to think death and think grief for myself in as much as such a thing is even possible, which is hard because they're such, you know, scripted experiences, as um, you've said before, too. And it's hard to kind of make that a singular thing when also it's, you know, kind of already so present in the fabric of everything. But of course, I regretted this when I wanted to start thinking in advance towards you and our conversation. Um, but I wanted to, I have a question that relates to our prior, um, what you said earlier about the visual arts and grief. And my question is about color. Um, I recently read, um, I recently read Sheila Hetty's newest book, Pure Color, which I'm not sure um, if you know, but it um, uh, it's a very griefy green book or a greenly grieving book. Um, the entire section, uh, the set second chapter takes place within a green leaf. Um, also when drafting this question, I misspelled leaf as life, which I thought was kind of amazing. But, um, and on the cover <laughs> of the book is an Ellsworth Kelly, Kelly Green painting. And she writes about her father dying. And I just wanted to read this quick passage and then direct another one to you, which is, she writes, the more she thinks about the, so the sort of maroonish light in his room those nights and the light of the candle flickering, she knows that the color of that room is how they all felt. And that color is not just a representation of the world, but of the feelings in a room and the meaningfulness of a room in time. Because that in that color, her father died. She had not ever seen that color before. It was the color of a father dying. And I was thinking about color when going through your books too. You wrote an obit for your mom's green chair. And I guess I'm wondering about not the past colors of past griefs that you've written about, but I'm wondering about what colors you're seeing now um, because I know you are such a visual person and I'd love to hear you talk about grief and color if, if that speaks to you at all. Yeah. First of all, I'm so sorry that your father passed away and um, equally sorry that, um, you know, that, that in some ways it's interesting, you know, when other people have written about grief, in some ways it's like, it ends up being a capsule for your own relationship with grief. And in some ways I'm sorry that <laughs> my words are probably, you know, have sort of infiltrated your body in some ways and feel like it's important for each of us to find our own experiences with grief. Um, and, and if there's like simultaneously someone who's written things down, it's, it's kind of like you almost have to extract yourself out so you can find your own identity and your own relationship with grief. So I appreciate you talking about that. I think that's really important. Um, and I also appreciate what you said about color. I, I haven't read that book, but I've seen it and I thought it was a really beautiful cover. Um, and, 
and it, it, I do think that color is always around, just like animals, I've noticed that, but in my poems, but color is always around in a lot of my, in my, in my writing. And it's interesting, this new thing I'm working on, actually color is there, but it's, um, it's actually black and white. And so, um, you know, like, like, I'll just show you, like, I'm drawing things here, but they're all black and white things. Um, and, um, and, and I think about now with the thing I'm working on, it's a lot of it is, is things being, um, covered. And so, and, and seeing and, um, and, uh, being seen and, and then covering things that I'm writing in different ways. And so, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's always present and, um, and my relationship with the visual has changed. You know, I think that before, even when I first started writing, I was writing ekphrastic poems um, in correspondence with, you know, Edward Hopper or, um, you know, some uh, sculptors and visual artists, you know, Eva Hess was somebody I had written a poem in correspondence with when I saw one of her installations. And this was way back. And now I feel like my relationship with visual artists and visual art myself is more is even more involved you know to go back to what you're saying about your own grieving process it's like i'm now like in someone else's vessel or in something that they made versus just looking at it and now i'm actually making things visual in correspondence to what other people have made as well so it's it could be going back to what um you know, we were talking about before in terms of confidence, you know, now I feel more comfortable and confident in sort of adding my own um, response to what other people have made visually. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a bit of a babble, but. <laughs> so I love Claire, your um, kind of for the relationship between grief and color. I never thought about it that way, but when you kind of brought it up. Can I remember my mom when she passed, I was 14, so young. And now oh, yeah. all the shade come to me was gray. And I think that's obviously not nothing unusual of gray. It's usually related to, you know, a lot of sorrow. But at the same time, I never thought about that. And now I'm gonna kind of, you know, go back to indulge more about this question. Um, so Victoria, I wonder... Um, cause earlier you talk about, you know, um, um, in racial kind of experience you had growing up in, in America as a kid. And in your book, you wrote about, you know, the fear of passing down the trauma and pain to your daughters. You wrote, while my parents may have maintained silence as a form of survival, silence had heartbeat, grew up and became the third sibling. That, that line was really, really, really powerful. Um, I mean, intergenerational trauma definitely has been coming more to the surface and has been acknowledged more in the recent years. Um, but I wonder what is your personal experience has been like with your own trauma, that the trauma you have carried from your parents and now, you know, to your daughters. Um, I wonder if we can expand a little bit on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like something you know or feel when you're younger. And this is probably true with a lot of us is that something about your experience doesn't quite mesh with everyone else's experience, you know, that you're hanging around with at school or that um, that's depicted on television or media. Um, at that time, it was just television. Um, and um, there's and even with my Chinese American friends that I was you know, growing up with when we had to go to Chinese school every Saturday, I would say there's just something about my experience that felt different than other people's experiences even. And, but you're, you know, when you're so young, you don't really know how or why, and it's just hard to put words to feelings, right? Um, tones, right? Colors, right? Or lack of colors or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like my mother was, was 
different, you know? <laughs> and then I felt like my, my family interaction was different. My sister was different and my relationship with her seemed different from other people's relationships with their siblings. And it wasn't until much later that I discovered that there are all sorts of issues in my family that were, um, to this day, I'm not quite allowed to talk about, but I kind of talk about, I've talked about it in like my middle grade novel and things like that. And I actually had to pull an essay from Dear Memory at the 11th hour because because my sister freaked out when she when I wrote about something in another um, New York Times piece that I was writing. And so it was related to her own sort of mental health issues and her own um, illness that she had dealt with growing up and that I subsequently had to deal with. So there's just a lot of unspoken trauma. And even like it got me thinking like my mother's um, anxieties and her, her, I think, and, you know, she would probably kill me if I said this, but un, undiagnosed generalized anxiety is how I phrase it, um, you know, was just prevalent in all of my growing up. And between my sister and my mother, like, especially my sister, I always felt like I was constantly um, walking on eggshells, you know, so I was constantly always adjacent to or within other people's trauma. And because of that, I think I've learned how to, um, you know, navigate the world in a way that can just makes everyone happy and calm because I was constantly afraid of, of, um, you know, waking the, the anxiety bear of other people and multiple people in my family. And so, um, you know, my mother's anxieties, it manifests itself on a daily basis. It's like, you know, just even the way she communicated with us, um, uh, you know, we had this joke that um, you know, she made us wear, she told us this, we were little, she made us wear two pairs of underwear. <laughs> like, why? But she just had anxieties about everything. Um, and and so that it's just like everything was fear-based, you know, and um, she was so worried about my sister and my sister's illness that, you know, was undiagnosed, but it's clearly, it was clear to me um, as an adult what the issues are and continue to be. But, um, you know, like, like there wasn't an acknowledgement of those things, right? It's like always, how do we find Chinese medicine to solve this? Or this, I was like, no, these are mental health issues. Like, can we just talk about them? And so um, to, to, you know, to the very last, and I wrote about this in Dear Memory, she just wouldn't, um, I don't think it actually made it in there. Um, she wouldn't acknowledge it even, at, you know, when she was close to dying is that my sister was dealing with this mental health issue. Um, she wouldn't name it. And I think that's just, you know, just so much trauma and not, not wanting to talk about things. It, it made me a different person. And so I think that's why I'm very malleable and I can, uh, deal with a lot of people's, you know, like very volatile emotions kind of thing is that I, um, I'm very even tempered and even killed because I've had to, to kind of deal with those kinds of things. And I, and I, so I think that's, um, that's the kind of family that, that I grew up with. And I think that is in, you know, both intergenerational trauma, but it's disposition and personality and, um, you know, like I, you know, just being being amongst anxiety, double, triple, all day long, every day was something that that I learned to navigate around, and it's made me who I am today. Mm -hmm. And are you uh, using writing to process your also your fear that you talk about in the book that passing down that that pain to your daughters? Um, yeah, and then so because as a mother myself, I think. Sometimes subconsciously, those it's almost like a an, an essay I, I I read a long time ago, almost like a ghost in the nursery. It's like you really don't sometimes it's a, it become a blind spot. Those trauma become so omnipresent that you don't even notice they were there, and until it's too late, kind of thing. Oh yeah, so totally. <laughs> so I wonder how how you <laughs> how do you navigate about that? Is that through your writing? Is that through some some other stuff. Yeah. How do it's you navigate? baked in us, you know? It's like, I think sometimes it's baked in our DNA and it's also baked in how I can't change how I was raised and I can't change, um, you know, I can't change some of the things that happened to me, uh, but, but I can only change certain things, like how I respond to certain things. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that I just can't, that is, that's their fate, you know, they're born to 
under me. And so they're going to have to learn how to navigate some of the things that I just can't change. Or I don't know how to, but I will say that I, I do the best I can in terms of, um, communicating about certain things. Like there are still things that I won't talk about and that I feel like I'm not doing that good of a job, but I still don't know how to, to deal, deal with those things. So I can't expect to know how to deal with them with my own kids. But, um, I definitely try and communicate a lot more and I name things. So especially things related to mental health issues or, um, you know, stress or anxiety, or I just call it out and name it. And then, um, and then we can kind of then figure out like how to talk about it going forward. And so I, I try my best to, to, to do the opposite to some extent of, of how I was raised um, by my mother who had great intentions, you know, but, but maybe just couldn't name things. And so, um, you know, like obviously kids, girls, today we struggle with all sorts of mental health issues and have all kinds of pressure. So I'll just talk about it. And just like, sometimes I I feel like I'm preempting. So I'll say stuff and I know that I guess, you know, we're adults, we can see like what kids are going through. So I'll just preempt it. So I'll be like, oh yeah. And I'll just say, um, say something ahead of them because you know, because you're an adult and then they'll be like kind of taken aback that you just named it then it'll make they'll be like oh yeah and then it gets them talking um like it's almost like i'm just gonna just i know this is gonna be embarrassing for you but i'm just gonna say it you know and so that that seems to work better than but pretending something doesn't exist or pretending they're not embarrassed i was like oh yeah you're probably feeling embarrassed about this or oh yeah no i know you like that person and i i know you liked him six months ago or you know like i just say i just say it instead of being like pretending that it's not there or something random like that. Yeah. Mm, which is quite interesting, almost the opposite of your your upbringing because silence is. played yeah. a huge role in <laughs> almost kind of like was totally opposite, Claire. Yeah, and that's um, exactly mm-hmm. what I wanted to just um, say how much I appreciate is like the act of naming um, that I appreciate most in the book is the naming of silence. I remember too, that's like, that was the word in the title that made me particularly, you know, um, excited to read it. Um, that was another theme of, you know, the low key parties I was taking a part of. Um, and I always go back to the John Cage line, you know, I have nothing to say and I am saying it and this is poetry as I need it. Um, and that, so I really appreciated that you carved out such, um, an important space in your book to not only write towards it, but to name it, um, you know, and the naming of the unnameable, you know, ends up making, you know, all the space in the world possible for it. And it's just, you know, the naming of the unsaid or the untranslatable as well, you know, because of mm-hmm. all the, uh, the disparities in language and memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. It's like, you it's once in it I don't know if I'm sure you've you've all felt this before is like once you recognize something or once someone points something out to you it's like this whole new thing opens up and this whole new world it's such a cliche but suddenly you can you you like see a whole like new houses over there new paths or new flowers and if someone didn't say something to you or if something didn't trigger it you know like some, an image or something you read it's just like that was all shut. It's almost like you had these like little horse, you know, things on blinders on, you know, and, and someone just takes one off. You're like, Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. look to my right. There's there, there are like people over there and you never even saw that before. And that's kind of, um, that's kind of, I think what communication can do, you know, it can open things up that you never imagined and someone could, I mean, I've been in so many conversations where someone would just point something out to me about my own writing or about me as a person. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And it just, and sometimes it's irritating. Sometimes it's hurtful. Sometimes something somebody says, it stays with you and it sticks with you. And all day long, you're stewing about it. But then you're like, wait, I'm stewing about this because it, it, it hit me in a really, mm. really important way. And so I think as a writer, I like to go, it's, you know, just to kind of, you know, parallel to the writing and craft and like the process of writing is that I always tell like my students just to find that those 
heat points and those hard things and just try your hardest to go right into it. And it might be like fire and you might need to put on, you know, some protection or it might be really cold and you might need to put on some scuba gear, but whatever it is, like just go toward that um, emotion and the, the stuff that you're really afraid of as much as you can as throughout your life, you know, it might not be immediate. It could be like 10 years later. It could be 15 years later, but I always tell people try your hardest because that's mm -hmm. where it all is. You know, I think I've, I have a very deep question, but not deep, but like it's gonna, I'm still debating if I, we should go there, but Claire, do you have anything else? <laughs> I say go um, there. I guess. Yeah, you should go there. <laughs> we will go there after. I wonder if Claire, Claire has something. Well, I do have a question. Um, I had a question about your like daily correspondence practice. I was wondering if there was one with like between friends. I know that um, a lot of writers go through periods of time in which um, correspondence and interaction with other writers and friends is, you know, particularly vital. And so, so sometimes it's life su sucking, you know, like occasionally, you know, you just want to write inward. And I wonder um, where you are now, if, uh, you are, um, because, you know, an email is kind of still an email to a friend is still kind of a way of writing towards oneself, but it's still a different mode of address. And I'm wondering if, um, you're in a time right now where you're seeking a lot of words of others, or if this is a more inward time, um, of your writing and when, those periods of your life tend to come when you feel like being, you know, an, a friend, a correspondent, whatever. And if, if there are times in which you kind of have to cut that off to serve, you know, a more private version of, of writing or thinking. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that it would vary for everyone, but for me, um, I'm so chatty and I'm such an extrovert by nature that I love social interaction. It really does fuel me and keeps me alive, frankly. Um, but when I was writing this other manuscript that I just finished, actually, it was, it's just like a very dark period of time. So I was less, um, I was less social, you know, so, uh, I was less, you know, there were you know, I, t I still text and I've got a whole bunch of friends that I text all the time and we're in a group chat and things like that. And then I've got other friends I email all the time. So there's just like a, maybe a group of seven, six, seven, eight people maybe that I correspond with pretty regularly. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I always will be corresponding with them, but it's kind of like how much of it is performance and how much of it is real kind of thing. And, and I, you know, I think that, that I'm in that more truthful outward bound period right now, where it's like everything that I'm, you know, transmitting, you know, like is, is genuine and real because my father and has passed away. And so it, it opens up possibilities to be more in touch with my own emotions versus always having to think about him kind of thing, um, which is different again, but I, yeah, I'm constantly in correspondence with people. I love it so much. I think I would, just be so lonely if I weren't constantly, um, you know, writing my friends or talking to them and things like that. And it's, it's a little harder today because, you know, you're so accessible via social media. So an email, and then I recently took on the New York times poetry editor, mm -hmm. editorship job, and that's opened up more emails. And so that's, I feel so guilty and the emails are starting to get buried and I don't, I cannot respond to everyone anymore, which is something I used to do a hundred percent all the time, unless I forgot. But now I actually, I think I just literally don't respond to emails um, from people. And that makes me feel bad because I always like the idea of being accessible to people, but at some point you have, you can't be. Mm. So yeah. That's interesting because I've, in, I've listened to so many interviews you have done on, you know, podcasts or, and then it, you, you always talk about you, you're this extroverted person, but that personality never, never shine through the interviews you have done. <laughs> and then today, I actually feel like I met a different Victoria in a way. Uh, <laughs> no, I no, it's, to I'm a, such a different person. People always, they're like, they read my writing and they're like, hmm. and they meet me in person and they're like, yeah, you're like, 
yeah, Kat Chow. I just saw her at Virginia. She says, you are so funny. And I was like, yeah, I actually make a lot of jokes. Like I'm constantly laughing and really lively and um, love, you know, doing like just playing cards. And I just cause all sorts of mischief and trouble and, and um, socially. So I think that people don't expect that when they when they actually read my writing, they think I'm going to be more um, sad and morose, which I am, but it's like, you know, I'm not always like that, but when I go out and do stuff, I'm, I'm super extroverted and laughing a lot. And, um, you know, make, I just love, I love people who make jokes and I, they, like people who make me laugh, I just love it. And so I, I'm much more sort of fun loving, I think, than people might imagine. And I think my, my kids say that too. They think, yeah, you're, they always say like, you're so fun. You're so fun, you know, cause I'm always do, like doing fun stuff with them and, and they're like, yeah, you're always funny too. And so we mm-hmm. have a lot of fun together. Do you have any daily ritual as a writer uh, to practice your writing? Cause you, you just finish your manuscript for the next book. So I wonder that yeah. kind of wrap it up or something, or you're going to yeah. go back to your daily ritual. Um, when I'm deep and into something that I'm working on, it's obsessive. Like I will take every second of the day. Um, master. It seems like you want to join the conversation. Yeah. He's barking over there. Ketchup soup. I'm petting ketchup. Mustard. But I think there's someone, um, doing something like with a leaf blower. I hear it now. It's a leaf blower, but, um, yeah, no, I think, um, for me, every second is important when I'm in that making mode and revising mode so since august every second every every day i will give myself as much time even 10 minutes 20 minutes and sometimes it's hours right um to work on to work on my my manuscript um and so that's i would say that's a ritual um it's like i refuse to let you know waste that time when i could be you know watching tv or doing other things i just you know i go in because it you know keeps me alive it makes me really happy all right i think that's all my question uh claire do you have any more questions you know i'm just so grateful that we got to hear all right if you have made all the way to here i really really thankful uh for your time and if you can just do me one more favor by head to apple Podcasts or spotify to leave us a review or comment that would be great you know that's just how the algorithm works the more people share comment or review the you know more possibility the podcast is going to be discovered by someone else and if you are interested in sign up to our Substack. If you haven't done so, you can just head to the link in the show note um, to sign up. Sometimes I will skip one or two weeks of interview podcast conversations, um, but I instead I will publish a personal essay or letter over there. Like last week, I skipped one week and I published a letter called Something a Stranger Once Told Me. I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, pie myself at the back. Um, anyway, so if you're not interested, in, if you're not interested in signing up, that's totally fine as well. Um, anyway, I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.